Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 20 through 25. Verses 20 through 25 of Mark 11, once again, God's holy word. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And what? And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your heavenly Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. That's for the reading of God's word. Let us pray. So there is a double standard that we all suffer from. That is, we are fond of taking others out of context, but we hate it when we are. That is, we'll latch on to one remark that someone said and color them completely by it. A single confused question, and we judge them as not very smart. You said everyone, thus you must have met me as well. The guy is critical of one woman, and so he must hate all women. The media is especially good at modeling this for us. They will highlight a single number, a narrow piece of data, one feature of the event, and then they'll twist the whole story to fit their agenda. Without context, one particular thing or happening can be made to mean whatever you want it to. Of course, we have no patience when others do this to us. We insist that the whole matter be taken into consideration. All the details, nuances, and extenuating circumstances need to be weighed. Yet this taking out of context is especially problematic as we do it with God and his word. Indeed, we love to grab a single verse, a lone phrase of scripture, and wave it like a flag for our own agenda, all the while ignoring the context God gave it. Well, the passage before us is widely yanked out of context, with all sorts of unhelpful consequences. And so it's good for us to hear these verses in the natural habitat given to them by God. So our Lord finally made it to Jerusalem, and he set up a pattern of coming and going in and out of the city. At night, he and the disciples lodged in the city of Bethany on the backside of the Mount of Olives. And each morning, they would head back into the temple. And this routine has put the days in parallel. On day one, Jesus uh, had need, so he conscripted a donkey to ride into the city amid chants of Hosanna from the crowds. Then he entered the temple, gazed around judicially, and left by sunset. On day two, he was hungry. He looked to the leafy fig tree that had no fruit, so he denounced it. Then he charged into the temple, stopped all worship, and condemned it for destruction. In this way, Jesus repudiated both the people's concept of the Messianic kingdom and the temple, as being wicked and against God. 
Well, now we arrive at day three, and like before, early in the morning, the disciples and our Lord make the easy walk from Bethany down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And sure enough, they bump into the same fruitless fig of yesterday. Yet this verdant tree is not so verdant anymore. It's not just the leaves that have dried and brown, but the whole tree aged into a skeleton. From its very root, it withered, died, and became a corpse. Now, as you know, trees can appear to be petrified, but new life can spring from their roots. But not this fig. Deep under the soil, at the very heart of its root, it was fossilized as if it was a mummy in a pyramid for several millennia. Its lush leaves have become a skeletal tombstone. And this haunting sight pricks the memory of Peter. Rabbi, look, the fig you cursed has withered. It's dead dry. Peter puts the fig front and center for Jesus to unpack and explain what he did the day before. Moreover, Peter rightly understands what Jesus said as a curse. Yesterday, Jesus said that no one would ever eat of the tree again, which was an effective curse of the tree. His words condemned the tree as wicked and punished it with death. And as we saw, Jesus wasn't ultimately interested in some random tree, but his was a symbolic act. The fig tree represented the people's bad theology of the Messianic kingdom and their wickedness in rejecting Christ. The leafy but fruitless fig was an emblem of the people's barren faith and obedience. Moreover, the cursed fig prepared for and was in parallel to our Lord's condemnation of the temple. He scattered all the money for atonement, and he chased off all the worshipers in order to republish Jeremiah's famous woe oracle against the temple and to forecast its destruction. Everything Jesus has been doing these past two days is about temple liquidation. He is signaling the end of the Old Covenant with its theocratic temple in preparation for his death and the coming of the New Covenant. Therefore, the dry bones of the fig tree stand as a sign and seal of the judgment against the leaders and the people who have rejected Jesus as the Christ and morphed the temple into an idol. And this picture of a withered tree calls to mind several other Old Testament passages. In Job 18, a tree withered to the root was an image of a wicked man and his fate. In Hosea 9, the Lord condemned Ephraim as cursed, withered to the root, never again to bear fruit. Additionally, there's a fascinating connection between this likeness and the parable of the sower back in Mark 4. There, the seed that fell on the rocky soil sprang up quickly, yet just as speedily it withered, for it had no root. And the rocky soil represented those who receive the word, but as soon as persecutions arise, they fall away. The withered root was a stumbling over suffering and hardship for the word. And what is the major obstacle 
for the people to accept Christ? It has been his cross. He is not a Messiah come in glory, but he has come to suffer and die. The skeleton of the fig is the tombstone for those who reject the cross of Christ. And by Peter pointing to the fig, Mark sets this truth front and center of his narrative. The empty praise of the crowds and the temple as idol that refused the suffering Messiah is a self-portrait of the fig. And with this truth before our eyes, Jesus responds to Peter. Peter is gawking at the dead tree, and Jesus speaks up. Thus, our proper and correct expectation is that Jesus is going to deliver some expansive teaching on the symbolic fig. And yet what Jesus does next, or says next, doesn't really seem to be on topic. Our first impression in verse 22 is that he's talking about something different. His little lesson on prayer doesn't feel like it fits the context. There's a gap between what Peter says and how Jesus responds. This is a skip in the logic that we need to fill in. How do we follow the thinking of Mark from verse 21 to verse 22? Well, this is the purpose of the parallelism between day one, day two, and now day three. The days align in order to mutually clarify each other. And the movement has been from the fruitless welcome of Jesus to the bankrupt temple, from the fig to the temple tantrum. This, then, informs us that Jesus is still addressing the same manner. Temple destruction is yet on the table. And so right out of the gate, Jesus calls his disciples and us to have faith in God. Peter says, look, the fig. And our Lord answers, believe in God. Jesus exhorts us to faith. We must put our faith in God, casting our whole selves upon him in trust. And on second thought, this makes perfect sense. The bones of the fig symbolized the lack of faith. It was the fate of the unbelieving crowds and the temple structure. Thus, as the petrified tree of unbelief stares us in the face, Jesus summons us to faith. Don't become like the withered tree. Have faith in God. This is a call to life before your monument of death. Yet this call of faith has a further connotation. Now, if you watch TV or movies today, you are you know of the well-worn-out cliché. That is, characters will say to one another in a tense moment, just trust me. You just have to trust me. In order to survive the crisis, trust is the only way. Well, similarly, this call to trust in God assumes a trial, a difficulty. The issue at hand is extremely challenging. It's earth-shaking when all your normal anchors for sanity are cut loose. The tone of our Lord's Lord here is, I know this will rock your world. This is going to throw you for a loop, so have faith in God. And what is this? cardiac arrest in a bottle? Well, he tells us. He says, whoever says to this mountain, jump into the sea, 
it will be done for him. Now, again, Jesus' logic is sometimes hard for us to follow. And on top of this, this verse is kind of troubling. Is Jesus really promising us that we can throw mountains into the sea? Is he stating that we can do miracles? If we just really believe, if our faith is so confident, without a hint of doubt, we can move mountains with the believing word. Well, as you know, this verse is often taken this way. Preachers have promised the saints miraculous powers with this verse. Leaders have rebuked and belittled the saints for the lack of faith if they cannot do such wonders. This verse has been a yoke and a whip to beat and bruise the faith of the saints. So, is this the right way to read this verse? Well, Jesus' words do feel a bit like this. Nevertheless, this is where it's good for us to be reminded that faith comes by hearing the word, and the word requires eloquent listening for a properly informed faith. Thus, note the details. Now, there is a biblical idiom about moving mountains. Mountains are symbols of power, permanency, and divine majesty. And so to move a mountain requires the strength of God. It's a metaphor for doing the impossible, for being equipped with the authority of the Lord. But this is not what Jesus says. He does not mention moving mountains, but partic- and particularly, he identifies a single mountain, this mountain. Jesus is not thinking about mountains in general, but he points to this mountain. And this is always dependent on context which here naturally refers to the Temple Mount. Jerusalem and the Temple geographically sit on a mountain. They are the uh, theologically equivalent to Mount Zion. And on the two previous days, Jesus walked up to the Temple Mount, and on this third day, as they head back into the Temple, Jesus points to this mountain. He's still addressing the temple, and his condemnation of it. Thus, this mountain is not being moved, but it's being lifted up and cast into the sea. To be thrown into the sea is the classic image of divine judgment. It's to be consigned by God's justice to the eternal prison of Sheol. In fact, back in chapter 9, Jesus put in parallel the unquenchable fires of Hades to being cast into the sea. The Temple Mount being tossed into the ocean is the same thing as Jesus, or that Jesus did on day two by condemning the Temple. Thus, this verse is not about wonder working, faith in general, nor prayer in the abstract. Our Lord is speaking about temple destruction, that its profaned hill will be tossed into the depths of Sheol. Though it is interesting that he applies it to the individual. He says, whoever says, believes, does not doubt, and it will be done for him. Whoever repudiates the temple as eternally judged in faith, so it is for him. 
Now, this feels kind of odd for us since the temple judgment is a singular act while individual belief of this truth happens over and over again. And yet this is how Jesus connects his act to our faith in it. For it's one thing for Jesus to judge the temple, but it's another for the people to agree with Jesus in faith. Therefore, following the call to faith in verse 22, verse 23 is basically a statement of faith that we all must profess. In accordance with Jesus' condemnation of the temple, we order, or we order the temple to be tossed into the sea in faith, and it is true for us. By faith in Christ, the temple becomes dead to us and our faith. And this is the challenge, the difficulty assumed in that call to faith. For remember that the temple lays at the heart of the Hebrews' faith and life. It was the nucleus of their worship, atonement, and covenant life. So also, Solomonic Messiahship, the idea of this, was near and dear to their hearts. To condemn the theocratic messiahship and temple as a withered fig, this is their heart attack. It's earth-shattering, world-shaking, covenant insanity that, that spells the end of the temple and the political messiah. To kill the temple is like cutting your heart out. It kills the patient. It slays what the people thought was the essence of their religion. A covenant relationship with God without the temple? This was more impossible than moving mountains. Thus, Peter points to the fig skeleton, the image of the temple, and Jesus answers, believe in God. Say to the temple mount, into the sea for you. Trust, do not doubt, and so the temple will be dead to your faith. By this, Jesus is removing the temple from having a place in our faith, which for the disciples and the people of their day was a miracle more impossible than moving mountains. And Jesus, note, he keeps the impossible, the astounding, the unlimited, before our attention. Now, he states verse 24, And he does it to put it in parallel with verse 23. He says, whatever you ask, as much as you pray for, all you can think and wish for. This is like a blank check, unlimited wishes from a genie. Jesus' unrestricted offer here is so unhinged, it makes us feel awkward. I can pray anything? Riches, fame, long life? If you pray for a trillion dollars, he will give it to you? Our Lord's unlimited generosity seems impious to us, and this is the point. Jesus is being over the top here to communicate that we cannot take him literally. Besides, from our everyday experience, we know that Jesus doesn't answer all of our prayers, and it's the same with throwing around mountains. The literal miracle of chucking Mount Palomar into the Pacific would be pointless and silly. What point would it serve? What would it accomplish? 
Well, nothing. Just as Jesus had in mind the specific condemnation of the temple, so he has the same impossibility in view here. Furthermore, the movement of the verb tenses stand out in verse 24. Note he says, you pray and believe in the present, that you already received your prayer in the past, and then it will be yours in the future. You received in the past, you believe in the present to obtain in the future. This is kind of strange. A past gift believed on in the present gives you an ongoing application. Such a timeline implies that Jesus is thinking of a specific prayer request. He says, whatever, to underscore the impossibility of the request, but he has a definite prayer in mind. And so he clarifies verse 25, when you stand to pray. And the you here, like the you in verse 24, is plural. In verse 23, he was speaking to us as individuals, but in verse 24 and 25, he addresses us as a body. Likewise, the posture of standing to pray was indicative of corporate worship. Jesus is talking about our new covenant worship here, which lines up with what he said the day before. In the temple, he stopped worship and declared that his house would become an international house of prayer. Our Lord then is talking about our petition in the New Testament worship. Thus, in worship, we can pray in faith and we will receive it. But what are we praying for? Well, verse 25, forgive others so that your heavenly Father may forgive your trespasses. And with this, Jesus dropped the mic. For what did Jesus stop in the temple? Sacrifices for forgiveness. Where was the only place to obtain forgiveness? In the temple. And what was a miracle more difficult and more impossible than healing or casting out demons? Well, prophets can stop the rain and split mountains. But what is the one miracle that God alone can do? Forgive sins. And this is exactly what Jesus did way back in chapter 3. He forgave sins for which the Pharisees rejected him. Thus, if Jesus destroys the temple, what becomes doubly impossible? Forgiveness. For there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood and no sacrificial blood without the temple. The faith of the Old Testament saints looked to God in the temple for forgiveness. For without forgiveness, there was no life, atonement, or salvation for them. Absent forgiveness leaves only wrath and punishment. The withered fig tree is the monument for the dead temple. And so Jesus comforts us and leads us to himself. For he's replacing the temple with himself and his death. Hence, he calls us to faith. In our hearts, we affirm that the temple is forfeit for forgiveness. And Christ is our forgiveness. And thus, it will be done for us. 
and in new, the New Testament worship as we stand to pray the most impossible miracle that is granted to us by faith is forgiveness. We believe that forgiveness was obtained in the past by the cross of our Savior, and so it is ours in the present and future. Moreover, we not only receive forgiveness from our Heavenly Father, but we can and must forgive others. Resting in the blood of Christ, he gives us the power of forgiveness, which is miraculous. In his name, we are to perform the most marvelous miracle of forgiving sin, which far exceeds any ability to heal or other such wonders. And this is not an infrequent miracle that we receive, but rather we receive it often and we share it with others. For the miracle forgiveness happens every time we pray and whenever we're gathered for worship. Every Lord's Day, as we rest in Christ's death for our sins, we profess that the Temple Mount has been tossed into the sea. We confess that our sins, or we confess our sins, and we ask for the heavenly miracle for the forgiveness of sins. And as we pray in faith, our Heavenly Father grants us this most sweet miracle and blessing. And this is the lesson of the fig tree skeleton. Temple worship is dead. We worship and pray to obtain the most supernatural salvation in Christ alone, as the one who died and rose for our sins. Out of context, this lesson has been abused and manhandled. But in context, it imparts to you the most delicious gift of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And it imparts to us the unshakable confidence to pray for forgiveness. Sure, Our sins are manifold. We repeat them over and over. Our sins are so ugly. How can Jesus keep forgiving us? Well, because he has already forgiven you of all your sins as he died and rose again. And he applies this to you anew every day. And so Jesus gives us the best boldness to pray for forgiveness based on his grace to do the impossible. Moreover, he imparts to us the inexhaustible generosity to forgive others. If God forgave us of so much, how much more must we forgive the little things that others do to us? With the temple gone, forgiveness has not ended. But on this side of the cross, Christ has made forgiveness plentiful, abundant, and easy. Thus, may we not doubt as we pray for forgiveness. In our New Testament worship, may we ever grant and ask for forgiveness. And may we be those people who are known for being quick to forgive others. To the praise of Jesus Christ and his shed blood for us, for his glory forever. Amen. Let us pray.